it is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Charlie Rosen over Zoom video. Charlie was born and raised in Los Angeles, born into a very, very musical family. Both his mom and dad are musicians. He started playing piano at three. Very early on, Charlie's parents realized he had perfect pitch. His dad has perfect pitch. His dad's mom, I believe, has perfect pitch, which basically means he can hear something and immediately go to the piano and be like, okay, that was this. Ding. Crazy. Obviously, he leans into that. Is obsessed with music his entire life. At around 15, he joined the onstage band for the production of 13, the Los Angeles version of uh, the production 13. Then he moved to New York at 17 for the Broadway debut of 13 as well. So at 17, he's already performing on Broadway. He talked about jumping back and forth between New York and Boston. He was going to Berkeley, taking some classes in Berkeley. Then he'd go back to New York to work on Broadway. He talked about going from not just a player on these Broadway shows, but to the music supervisor positions and the music director and the orchestrator and what all that meant and how he got to those spots. He told us all about that. He talked about his project, the 8-Bit Big Band, which is a jazz orchestra that he arranges all around video game music. And he actually just won a Grammy Award for Best Arrangement for a song from the Kirby Superstar video game, which was like a game 25 years ago, which is crazy. He talked about winning a Tony Award for Moulin Rouge, and he's currently up for another Tony Award, which we might know the results of when this episode comes out. But uh, he's up for a Tony Award for Best Orchestrations for A Strange Loop, which is the show he currently works on. You can watch our interview with Charlie on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It would be awesome if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it'd be awesome if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Charlie Rosen. First off, congratulations on uh, yet another Tony nomination. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's coming up on Sunday. I didn't realize that. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know very soon. Away. Yeah. I know, a few days away. And the craziest thing about it is because of uh, the pandemic, the last Tony Awards was less than a year ago. So <laughs> if all goes oh, well, that, right? Yeah, it was in September. Like the tw- they combined 2020 and 2021 Tony Awards in September, this just last September. Uh-huh. So there's a, there's a slight chance that I might be, that I might've won two Tonys within the two course of a year. year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That'd be crazy. Pretty crazy. Pretty That's crazy. So awesome. So yeah. awesome. But again, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I'm I'm super excited to watch the Tonys and see yeah. if, if you got another one. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And in between them, I won a Grammy. So, hey, it's been quite a year. Oh, I know. <laughs> I want to talk to you about that as well. <laughs> quite a year for sure. Um, well, year. Awesome. So uh, born and raised in L.A. Is that what I read? Mm-hmm, that's right. Okay. Tell me. Where about are you? That. Where are you? I'm, I'm in Nashville now, but I'm originally from San Diego. I lived in oh, San Diego okay, for cool. my pretty basically my whole life. I spent a handful of years in San Francisco. Uh, working and then back to San Diego. And then my family and I, we moved to Nashville about a year and a few months ago. 
Oh, okay. Nice. Do you like it? I've never been. I've always wanted to go. I absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, coming from California and just being, I was honestly like the most terrified I've ever been in my life. I was, like <laughs> such bad anxiety. I'm like, are we making the worst decision ever? Yeah. yeah. And then I love it here. Absolutely oh, nice. love it. Yeah. So I love that. But it's, yeah, it's different change of pace, but it's, yeah, it's amazing. Right. <laughs> right. That's cool. And, you know, I was born and raised in L.A., but I actually prefer New York. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we well, that's even that. more fast. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a lot more exciting. But yeah, I was born and raised in L.A. and my parents are both musicians. My mom is a bassoon player and plays all sorts of woodwind instruments and is uh, a music teacher in schools and, and a classical musician primarily. And my father uh, is somewhat of a jazz musician and plays organ and keyboard and a little guitar and banjo and accordion and all sorts of weird things. And the craziest thing is my house in Los Angeles, uh, we have a pipe organ built into our house because my dad's oh, sort of, yeah, it's wild. My dad's sort of like passion uh, in general is being like a silent movie theater organist. So he accompanies silent movies on the organ like they used to do in the days before talkies, you know? Yeah. 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 So I grew up around that a lot. So yeah, parents are both musicians and uh, they didn't force me into music or anything, but, I always just gravitated naturally towards wanting to explore and play and stuff. And, and luckily I was born into a family that was very supportive of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then when I was 17, so interesting. I moved well, to New York. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Real quick. I want to back up here for a second. Yeah. So the house you grew up in had an organ, like, mm -hmm. in, like tell me about how this works. So it's, you said it's into the house built into the house. Yeah. So what we did is like, we bought some property, in uh in the valley in chatsworth okay. which is san fernando valley slightly mm -hmm. you know in la county but like the suburb of la and sure. they built like a small building in our backyard from the ground up to house this pipe organ uh and so it's like a specific house for the pipe organ but it also served as like a recording studio growing up and a rehearsal studio growing up but the point of it was to set up chairs in there and pull down a projector screen and show silent movies and and the organ is installed in this building and my dad would play the organ and all the pipes are up behind a wall. And uh, yeah, it's this crazy, That's huge so instrument. Crazy. Yeah, That's it's so very cool. wild. Do they still live there? They still live day? there. It's all wow. there. Organ is there. Everything's there. I was going to say that if they sold it, that'd be such a bummer. Hopefully they would sell it to somebody that also appreciated I the fact know. that it's there. <laughs> yeah, there's very few of them left in the world. So, you know, this is definitely one of the one of the last remaining operational silent movie theater organs in existence. It's pretty cool. That's incredible. So did he do that as a hobby or was he doing that professionally as well? Well, you know, somewhat professionally. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, in the 20th and 21st century, the late 20th century, there's not a lot of uh, work for a silent movie organist. Right. I don't know. Maybe he did like scoring or something from there. <laughs> no. Yeah. He just uh, he became a lawyer by day because okay. he just really wanted to play silent movie music. That's just what he wanted to do. But obviously that doesn't make a ton of money. And so he got he became a lawyer. Okay. Smart yeah. move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So you uh, obviously grew up with music. What was the first instrument you learned? How old were you when you started playing? I started playing piano at age three. Uh, oh my gosh. Kind of crazy story. My parents discovered that I have perfect pitch very young because <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. at around age three, I was able to recognize which notes on the piano were white or black. I didn't know anything about music theory, but I could like identify them based on their color with accuracy. Huh. And my dad also has perfect pitch. So it kind of runs on our family. My grandmother on his side had perfect pitch. So all that put together, they were like, oh, okay, he's got it too. It's running in the family. Doesn't know note names, but he knows colors because he's in preschool and uh -huh. you can tell the difference. Uh, so they started me on piano lessons, you know, and then through the years, I played some cello lessons, flute lessons. And then eventually 
you know, when I was like 10, 11, you start to get into your own music. I really wanted to play guitar and bass and drums. I want to be in bands, play rock music sure. with my friends. Uh, yeah. And it just kind of all grew outward from there. You know, I developed an interest in playing brass instruments. I, I play a lot of woodwind instruments because my mom does. I, I play a little bit of a ton of different things, but my home is sort of still piano, mm-hmm. but I like to say instruments that have necks on them. So, you know, guitars, right. bass, mandolin, sure. ukulele, whatever it is, banjo, things with necks, necks and frets. <laughs> things with necks. Things well, with necks. Uh, when you say you had perfect, perfect pitch, um, does, like, could you hear something and then go to the piano and play it? Yeah. Like if you were to watch a television show and you could hear, like, the theme song would play, could you walk right over to the piano as a kid and just play it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's, oh, wow. That's yeah. so cool. It's sort of like, I describe it as like, you know, some people can, some people are really good at just, you know, in the same way that people can see a color and say like, oh, that color is blue. That's blue. Uh, and then if you take that really far, some people can, you know, clearly see the picture of something in their mind and draw it perfectly on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like what perfect pitch is for sound. Like I can, I can identify and recreate all the notes and sounds that I hear you know, and then to translate them onto an instrument is kind of a different skill, but something I've also become very good at and developed over time for sure. That's so incredible. Uh, you're the, only, the second person I've ever interviewed that has. Perfect. Oh yeah. Who's the first? Uh, now you're, I, I, <laughs> I, I can remember. I'll just curious. Band? Yeah. You know, I'll know in a second. Okay. It's uh, yeah. It's the singer from hold on. Our Lady Peace, the singer, his name is Rain. He's married. His wife is also a professional musician and they have a band together and his wife has perfect pitch, but I can't think of her name right now okay, off wow. the top of my head. So <laughs> that it's right, that many right, right. down the line, but she does too. <laughs> like she said as, as a kid, she could hear like go like watch a television show and then go to the piano and like literally play it right like, without even. And I'm sure you have the same experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so wild. That's so cool, though. I That's mean, cool. obviously, you have to like lean into that and be like, well, I, I have this. I should probably pursue. Music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, you know, it's sort of worked out and it's, it's been a really great tool over the years, for sure, especially especially when I need to learn stuff by ear or play stuff and play in bands or jump in and learn stuff on the fly, learn stuff quick. Uh, yeah, it's been really great. And, you know, a lot of people ask oh, but sometimes it's a curse, right? I feel like that's the thing people always say is, oh, perfect, oh, sure. though. It can be bad, though, sometimes, right? I've sort of yet to discover how it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. People are always I've like, heard that oh. too with people that know music theory really well, or yeah. it's like, then, then you'll hear the person go, well, then like, you can't be as creative because you can't unlearn that. I, it's I like disagrees because the, the it, arguments are always like, oh, well, when things are out of tune, it must be really painful. I'm like, but isn't it painful for everybody when it's out of tune? Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really understand this argument. Some people are like, oh, well, when things aren't perfectly in tune, you must sure. be rough, but like, that's not true either because there's some amazing classic recordings that were like recorded at slightly the wrong speed. So they're like in between E and F and keys. And like, that's amazing. And there's microtonal music and the, the whole structure of having 12 notes in a scale is an entirely Western concept anyway. So like, it's all relative. I say, you know, haters be gone. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. So you, did I read that you were playing in like a show really early? You were like a piano player or you did something yeah. like a Broadway style show or that yeah. eventually made it to New York, right? Yeah. So it's kind, of, it's kind of funny. Yeah, exactly. So I, I got really lucky when I was in high school. I, I didn't know I was going to do theater. I, I just wanted to play jazz and play in bands and, and play whatever. And um, there was a show in LA called 13 the musical and I was a software and the gimmick of the show was it was about being in middle school. And so they wanted an all teenage cast, but 
the composer also felt really strongly about having an all teenage orchestra. He thought that'd be like a really cool, and they'd be on stage and they'd say, Oh, look at these teenagers, they're musicians. It's very cool. So I, <laughs> I did that show when I was a sophomore and a junior in LA. Uh, and then when I was a senior, that same theater company, Center Theater Group, produced like another sort of rock musical and they asked me to play bass in that. Those are a year apart. Then I got super, super, super lucky because the following year after I left high school, that first show, 13, transferred to Broadway at a theater called the Jacobs Theater. So I got to move here when I was 17 to New York and do that before going to college. And then as luck would have it, the other show that I did when I was a senior in high school also transferred to Broadway a year and a half later into the same theater, wildly enough. And so before I was 20, I had two Broadway shows under my belt. Uh, and so that was like a huge foot in the door, obviously, into this world that I didn't know I was going to be in, but sort of fell into. Uh, and then looked around at the landscape and thought like, wow, this is really cool. This is, could be a place for me and what I do and creatively. And uh, yeah, and that was in 2008. So now here we are 15 years later almost. And yeah. Oh my gosh. So at 17, you go to New York, mm -hmm. but I, I did. I, I think I also saw that you went to Berkeley, right? Yeah. I got, I got that kind like, of in that between area like <clears throat> excuse me I just for me i'm like where does he have time to do all right. these things at such an early age again my <laughs> circumstances were very very lucky in that so I had, the, I had this huge foot in the door very early in my in my career and then in between shows i would go to berkeley so like i did the first show i'd go to i went to berkeley for one semester oh, got it got the other gig moved back and berkeley was really cool about being like oh yeah you gotta take a gig go do a gig you can come back and i did that like three or four times which is really a great way to go to college for music kind of, I treated it kind of like a vocational school where in like, I did a show, went to Berkeley, mm -hmm. learned some stuff. Great. Came back to New York, applied that stuff and then looked around and thought, Oh, you know what? If I want to succeed in this business, I should learn some better producing skills, some arranging skills, some more about this style of music. And I would go back to Berkeley and say, okay, I'm going to take this class and this class and this class, but not these other classes that I don't think I'm going to need. Uh, and I didn't really think I was going to graduate anyway, which I did not. So I sort of was like, I'm going to forego some of these classes that I don't think will help me. Right. So I really got to customize it and tailor it exactly to what I wanted to do in this field. Uh, and so I really don't feel like I wasted a single dime on college, which some people can't say, you know? Right. I was going to say you kind of were able to, because you had a gig and you already kind of, that's kind of the end goal. I would imagine if you're going to Berkeley, right. right. Either right. be an artist, get signed to a label, do you know, work in the field that you're trying to, to, to pursue. And you can kind of go back and just grab or more skill sets and then take it back to what you are already doing. Exactly. Did that help you kind of advance in? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, in your career. I can't even measure the ways in which my being able to cherry pick courses from Berkeley was helpful in not, you know, cause I moved to New York to be a musician in these shows, right? Just a musician. Mm -hmm. I wasn't on the creative team. I wasn't arranging. I wasn't composing. I wasn't but then looking around from that inside of that landscape and saying, oh, look at these, there's an orchestrator on the show and a composer and an arranger and a you know, music supervisor, these all these other positions. And that's kind of where I want to be. So what are they doing? Like, what are they doing? That's so I got to identify like, oh, they're doing this and this and this and this. Okay, I'm going to go learn how to do that. You know, so it was really tailored and really specific, really helpful. Was it hard to, to transition out of the, uh, you know, you're a player, they, they hired you to come play this instrument for this show. And then you want to kind of, you know, figure out yeah, how to advance, right? You yeah. Learn how to, what's this guy doing? How, did, how does this person do this job? And you're learning at Berkeley and you're coming back. Are you able to like 
do you have a mentor or somebody that you're able to kind of work with that's allowing you to learn uh, additional skills and were they at shows and was this happening at shows that you were already working on? Totally. I mean, I had a lot of a lot of mentors that influenced me in a small amount uh, along the way, mostly learning on the job, working with these people. But honestly, the thing that really started to set me apart from just being a player was uh, this sort of like emerging new musical scene that I found myself in. While doing those shows, uh, I sort of got recommended to play these concerts and, and cabarets and like new music concerts of contemporary musical theater writers. Just play the bass usually, you know, or guitar. I got to know all of them. And so and, and seeing that they had needs musically beyond just playing, they need horn arrangements or they would need their stuff transcribed into, into piano music or they would need charts for the band and just going like, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that for free. I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free just to begin to like plant seeds as people knowing me as somebody who could function more as just only not a side musician, you know, who had uh, creative chops in other ways and arranging chops and composing chops. And then the thing that really broke it open for me was I, you know, have always loved jazz and I've always loved large ensemble arranging and composing big bands and orchestras and, and, you know, uh, film music and, uh, and broad, big Broadway orchestras, of course, as well. And so I started a, a project of my own called Charlie Rosen's Broadway Big Band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, play at 54 Below, a, like a Broadway cabaret here. And we've been, we, I was, I've been doing it for years, but I first started doing it. And would, I would call on the Broadway singing connections that I had made. And I'd take songs from Broadway shows and I would rearrange them and reimagine them for an 18-piece jazz orchestra. And we'd cram them all on stage and they would sing. And I got to really wow. just practice my arranging chops and flex my arranging chops and word sort of spread about that. And more and more other musical theater contemporaries of mine and, and, you know, composers and music supervisors and arrangers and directors and choreographers started coming to check it out. And I would invite them to come see it. And it sort of served as both a showcase for me to be like, look, I can do this. And mm-hmm. also a laboratory for me to really shed and practice those kinds of skills in a real world setting and learn from my mistakes, see what works, what didn't work. I would write stuff and musicians would get mad and I'd want to know why, you know, stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. That sort of served as my lab for a long time, both as a calling card and as something I love to do, a way to meet musicians. I met tons and tons of New York musicians doing that. So, you know, really like the thing uh, people ask is like, what's the thing you did that sort of helped break you through? And it really was like, I came up with a thing to showcase myself because I sort of realized, you know, people aren't going to come to you. You really mm-hmm. have to go to them or be like, look, check this shit out. I can do right. This, you know? Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Like, how do you then prove to these other people that are in the industry? Like, look, I am. Uh, I know you might know me as the bass player and blah, blah, blah. But I can also do all these other things. I have all these mm-hmm. other skill sets because mm-hmm. I'm sure I would imagine a lot of people in the industry can be like, oh, yeah, I can do that, too. It's like a lot of yeah, sure, I can do that. But it's like, how do you prove that you can actually do it? And yeah. especially at that level. And when people are going to spend a lot of money on their album or their show, they sort of want to have a proof of concept. So I have I had all right. this stuff to prove for it. And then after I started doing that, you know, composers and people in the theater would ask me like, oh, can you, you know, arrange some songs for my album? Or like, can you do this one chart for my show? I have an off-Broadway show. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, went upward from there. And I started to really uh, get to know some people who are just working on Broadway all the time. Composers, you know, I've, I've been working a lot with like some pretty, some, some pretty more veteran composers in the last like five or six years. And they were really mentors. For example, I, you know, I, I, I worked. So the person who wrote that show 13 is named Jason Robert Brown. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he did an adaptation of the movie, movie Honeymoon in Vegas for Broadway. And uh, he asked me to do a couple of arrangements for that, just a few. 
And so I was in a room with some other like really veteran people arranging like I was and to hear my music against their music, you know, and have them go like, hey, you know, what would work a lot better is if you did X, Y, and Z with these horns, or if you did this string stuff here instead, it would really support the singer more. So lots of like learning on the job and, and working mm. with the same people and just having them be like, hey, you know, this is great, but have you tried this? You know, so it wasn't really ever like one mentor, but just mm-hmm. lots of creative feedback and, and constructive feedback from a lot of people over a long period of time. Okay. So when you're arranging something like that, you have the original piece of music or you know how it was originally written mm-hmm. and you kind of just hear, okay, I think this section would be cool if you play, if the horns did this and that, and you're just kind of building, but you yeah. have to kind of, yeah, it's just you're so right on the money because yeah, I'm like, I, it's just, it's uh, something I don't know a whole lot about. And I'm just right. so fascinated by it. Here's it's the way like, I talk about that's it. That's insane. Like, if, if you get technical, like music, music, like that's, a, it's, it's just a different language for me than like three power chords and right, right. Know, a, a punk rock song. Or it, so this is really what it boils down crazy. to. This is really what it boils down to. You know, we have these terms, arranger, orchestrator, mm-hmm. producer, you know, they're all, they all share one thing in common. These sure. pe- these, the skill of doing those things is hearing the unrealized potential in a piece of music. And mm-hmm. so when you're doing that in a context professionally, it's your job to like be a vessel to support the vision of the original person's music, right? So a composer writes a song, a songwriter writes a song, uh, you talk with them and they say, I'm feeling this vibe, I'm feeling this thing. And then you as the arranger, producer, orchestrator, whatever you want to call it, you, you hear the unrealized potential based on years and years of listening and experience. You have this bag of tricks, you know, this, mm-hmm. this vocabulary and you say, okay, you want this. It's sort of this genre. What's, and, and, and what it is, is to have a really analytical mind to pick apart the genres and go like, what makes, what's the DNA of the genre that we're going for? What instruments does it use? What melodies does it use? What rhythms does it use? What chords does it use? You know, how, how advanced or simple, how loud, how soft, how thick, mm-hmm. how thin, what colors. Uh, and that's really what it boils down to. And then the technical stuff, obviously, you need more and more technical ideas, the bigger the arrangement is and the more instruments you have. But on a conceptual level, it really is like hearing unrealized potential and being somewhat of a dramatist and going, okay, what's going to, what contrasting uh, parameters and colors can I use to bring out the full journey of this musical listening experience over time? That's what we do. That's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. And especially to be able to just hear and visual, like, like you said, just see what's going on with sound. It's so crazy to me. Like, mm-hmm. I love it. Just being able to break down one piece and then create a whole new adaptation of what it, what it is. And I do like, consider it like draw. It is the, the metaphor I use a lot is drawing wherein like somebody writes a song and they, they draw sort of like, you know, a, like a figure on the, on a piece of paper. And then we're sort of like the Bob Ross, you know, of the, <laughs> sure. like, oh, but this little cloud here in this tree and this, and we fill in the color where the illustrators, you know, we have yeah. a palette of sounds that we've developed sure. based on what instruments are available or what, you know, sounds we want to use. And just, we just Bob Ross the song, you know, that's amazing. It's kind of what uh, you did with the, the, the project you have a Grammy with, right. Mm-hmm. With you, you have the, the video game song, the eight bit songs that are very like, and yep. then you're yeah. able to build this whole beautiful arrangement around it. Right. And what's interesting about that is there are now kind of getting into two more global approaches to what it means to be an arranger, you know? Mm-hmm. So the sort of business approach is in, your, in a musical or a movie, or you're working on an album, somebody has a vision and you are there to honor that vision and they have a goal. You see that goal, you help them achieve that goal. 
in a personal project of mine where I'm in charge, there isn't somebody necessarily telling me what to do. And so it's not just upholding the original vision. It's totally recontextualizing the vision, taking it out of its original context, coming up with a new idea for it, like a new seed. For example, we have a song called Still Alive from a game called Portal, Mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of like a sort of an indie pop song. And I took it totally out of that context. And my seed of an idea was, well, what if Frank Sinatra had played this video game? What would that sound like? You know, so then we swing it. So I get to be really, really creative and playful, recontextualizing this music. Uh, and yeah, that's what that project is. And so it's kind of a crazy thing. This Grammy that we won, it's the third time a piece of video game music has ever been recognized in the Grammy Awards. And the first two times were connected with the releases of those games. You know, they're part of the soundtrack. Okay. This is the only time when a totally brand new arrangement, recontextualizing uh, uh, reinterpretation of a piece of music from a video game has been nominated. This, this game came out 25 years ago. I was going to say, you know? wasn't it on Kirby's Dreamland? It was like yeah. from Kirby, right? Super Nintendo. <laughs> like, yeah, 1995. Yeah, <laughs> so it's yeah. not connected. The thing that's cool about it is it truly just honors the, the genre of video game music as a canon of music, as opposed to being specifically connected with the release of a game. So it's, it helps bring legitimacy to the fact that we have like a great video game songbook of collective experiences through uh, this body of work, the same way we have the great American songbook or film scores or Broadway scores. We have this body of work attached to this media that we grew up with. So now we can reimagine it and reinterpret it. Yeah. It's so cool. I, I was listening to a lot of those songs mm-hmm. earlier today. Cause I'm like, I wonder what, and, and I'm going through and I'm, I'm fascinated by your, your choices of songs and games. Like, You'll have, you know, like Super Mario Odyssey or like the some Luigi kind of spin-off yeah. game that they had. Like, how are you finding these songs? Like, were they games that you played and were like, oh, that's a really cool song. Like, I like what that sounds like. And you kind of jotted it down or just, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's half, it's half and half. I mean, I grew up okay. a big gamer. I like I had tons of Nintendo consoles. And as a musician, I was always like pretty keenly aware of what was going on in the score. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's half just songs from my youth that I experienced and then half because only one person can play so many games in their lifetime. We have a lot of fans that recommend me uh, soundtracks and oh, stuff okay. or games to check out that I wouldn't necessarily have checked out. So I would check them out, listen to the soundtracks and go, oh, this is great. We should you know, do this. We should do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's such a, the fan base of video game music is so passionate in a way that I had no idea even existed before I started doing this. So they're very vocal with requests. And I, I have a channel on the 8-Bit Big Band Discord that's just for requests. So I always peruse that and go, oh, I didn't even know this game existed. How cool, you know. Okay. Because I was curious. Yeah, I was wondering how you found some of these. I'm like, mm-hmm. Sonic the Hedgehog 3. I mean, yeah. okay. <laughs> Not Which, just the, tr- the typical, like, ri- you know, the Sonic song that if you yeah, play. Yeah. Like, that's why I, uh, I loved your going to, like, these deep cuts right, in right. each game. Which I had to check out recently because I didn't have a Sega growing up, so I had never played it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, sh- I want to go on your Discord and, and throw out a suggestion. Um, yeah. And maybe you've heard this one before. The the uh, Mike Tyson Punch-Out, Nintendo Mike Tyson Punch-Out, when you are going to fight the next bosses and you're like in the workout thing, it, okay. there's like you're, you're kind of running and your trainer's like helping you. I know it's exactly. Like a, it's like a transition scene. You know what I'm talking about? Exactly. There's that it goes song like, Yes, that's a cool one. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Has that's anyone a, done that a, one yet? <laughs> no, but that's a really good idea, actually. <laughs> okay. That's a great idea. I love that theme. Awesome. That's so yeah. funny. 
That was the one I was thinking of. I was looking through. I'm like, does he do that one? That's like one that always has stuck out to me as a kid. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a really good idea. And he's on the bike, right? He's on the bike. Yeah, he's riding the bike. And then you're you're like, your trainer guy's in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great game. Yeah, that's so cool. So what just was it just uh, love of video games and obviously a fun kind of thing that you put together with with a big, big band? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so I was talking a bit about the Broadway big band, which I had been doing. And then Mm -hmm. it's actually I really love telling the story of the origin of the Apit big band because it is very it's very cool. I, I like took a vacation with my girlfriend to Japan in 2016 just for fun, Mm -hmm. just for fun. We got an Airbnb in Kyoto. And on the same block, there was this musical instrument store that had been open for like 300 years. I'm like, wow, that's wow. cool. That yeah, is cool. They, they sell traditional Japanese instruments. And so I bought an instrument called a shamisen, which is like a traditional stringed, plucked string instrument. Kind of looks like a guitar, but the, the pick looks like a putty knife. It's like this big and you hold it like this. Very oh, cool. Wow. And I wanted to take a lesson in it uh, while I was there. So I have a friend who plays in the 8-bit big band now, didn't exist at the time. But mm-hmm. he plays a traditional Japanese flute called the shakuhachi. And he, mo- he went there to study that. So I said, hey, man, do you know anybody in Tokyo? I was going to Tokyo the next day that, you know, does this stuff and might want to give me a lesson. And he said, yeah, absolutely. He hooked me up with a friend of his. I went to that guy's apartment. We had a lesson. It was very cool. We got along really well. And I saw that he had this really obscure video game music soundtrack on his floor from a series called Ganbare Goemon, which only one entry came out in the United States of. Okay. <laughs> and I'm for the N64. And I'm like, oh, I love, I love Ganbare Goemon. Like, oh, and he's like, oh, do you like video game music? And I thought, I guess I've never really said this out loud, but like, yeah, I, I mean, I really do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really do. And so he said, okay, let me give you something. And he gave me a copy of his album. And his album is all video game music arranged for traditional Japanese ensembles. So like classical Japanese music, but they play Mega Man and, and all this stuff, like listening to it on the plane home, like, man, this is so cool. And it just sort of hit me like, you know, I love big bands and I love orchestras and large ensemble arranging. And like, I know there are a lot of orchestras playing video game music out there right now, but there's not a ton of like sort of pop orchestra, jazz, big band, swing, funk, like large ensemble with soloists and an MC and singers and like good mm-hmm. times and improvising. And like, you know, like what if the New York pops did an evening of, of video game music, as opposed to like straight aheads like symphonic or like epic metal, which everyone else is doing. I'm like, I should do that. I should. So I went home and I like started arranging songs from my youth for this band. And after a couple months, I went to the studio and we recorded our first album. We had 10 songs on it and mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, I'm going to do this see what happens. It's really fun for me. I just love this music. And uh, yeah, I posted videos of it on YouTube and they really just blew up in a really cool way. And as it turns out, there's, I tapped into this huge existing fan base and scene, especially on YouTube for video game music covers. Mm -hmm. No idea existed before music festivals for video game music, huge, huge festivals, all this stuff, you know, you know, I'd never been any conventions that had to do with video games before this. Like I had no clue and it's such a loving community and such a supportive community. And uh, yeah, that's how it started. That's so cool. I've, I've uh, interviewed a couple artists that have made, uh, like kind of got really big their start from like video game channels on YouTube using mm. their songs, like when mm-hmm. the people are playing it. 
Which right. is, it's fun. It's cool to hear like the other, it's almost like the other side of it. Like they're not running a song for a video game or it's not going in the game, but it's a gamer using it that turns into yeah. a thing. That and I get a lot of like, with that. I get a lot know? of requests from like Twitch streamers, you know, like, can we use your stuff in the stream? And I always say like, yeah, you can, but just no, I don't technically own the rights to this music. So <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He's a little dicey there. A little dicey. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you, you might get taken down. But go for it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to hear and see like your YouTube channel and, and what you have going on with with that eight bit big eight bit big band that mm-hmm. uh you know it's kind of the 180 of, of what other you know people that I've chatted with have right. done. Right. And that's space, funny. at least. That's so funny. Um, so you uh, you scored a Gra- uh, Tony Award and a Grammy mm-hmm. Award with, mm-hmm. with the Grammy Award. Was that something? Because uh, I want to talk to you about the Tony. But I want to talk sure. about both of them because they're sure. coming up here. Uh, yeah. But with a Grammy, was it something that was kind of out of nowhere where you got nominated, or like what was it like? Can't tell you how much of a long shot I really thought this was. <laughs> like <laughs> random video game music orchestra soundtrack from thirty five years ago. I mean, talk about niche, niche, niche. You know, right. I, I could never in a million years have anticipated this was going to happen. Uh, basically, you know, I'm a Recording Academy member, mm-hmm. uh, and so I can vote on the Grammys. And as a Recording Academy member, you can submit yourself for a Grammy. But I, mm-hmm. I became it this year. I didn't. I don't know anything about this, but I. You can do that. And so I did. I thought, okay, you know what? It's a long. It's a long shot, but yeah, what why, the not? Hell? why <laughs> right. not? Why not? Why <laughs> not? So I submitted myself uh, in this category and. Just, you know, so, you know, like the, the voting happens in two rounds. And so what we see in the five nominees, that's round two. Mm-hmm. And so the first round, you narrow it down from like tons of entries. And so, for example, the best new the album of the year category in round one has 1500 albums. 1500. Oh, wow. Yes. 1500. And so it gets smaller. That's obviously a big one. But the arranging category that I, I won for. I mean, there were 500 things submitted in that category, you know, so it's like that's still that's a lot long odds, long, long odds. And so it really just becomes like, you know, how much brand awareness do you have? And luckily, there were enough people who vote on the Grammys that were aware of what we were doing to help us pass round one. When we mm-hmm. got to round two and we were at the Grammys, me and um, this particular track that I won for, I usually do all the arranging myself. Uh, but I had happened to collaborate with a friend of mine named Jake Silverman, who goes by Button Masher, who's an incredible chiptune artist. Uh, oh, cool. this, yeah. And so he did this sort of original arrangement of it on, on, on chiptunes. And I was like, oh, can I turn that into an orchestra piece? You know, so we worked on it together uh, and we were sitting there and I was sort of like, hey, man, you know, we don't think we're going to win. I mean, like there's all these other great nominees and, you know, there's the London Symphony Orchestra and shit. Like, yeah, there's no it's OK, but it's like, hey, we're sitting here. How cool is that? You know, like mm-hmm. it's video game music. That's so niche. And it's at the Grammys. It's very cool. It's a huge day. We're so proud. Then when they said our names, it was just like, boom, like John, the floor. <laughs> we were frozen in place. And my girlfriend was like, you guys got to go. You got to go, go on stage. We were like, ah, you know, oh my never gosh. in a million years would I have expected this. And it's an incredibly niche thing. It's, but it, it really is like, has been huge for the community to help legitimize video game music as its own standalone art form. You know, it's very mm-hmm. cool. Very that cool. is so cool. That is so cool. And then, yeah, to, to actually win and be up there and you know, mm-hmm. now you have the, it's just what a it's cool story. Yeah. And with, with, uh, then with the Tony award was you, you were nominated and won for that as well. 
for mm-hmm. a strange loop, right? That's the one that strange Mulan. loop is this strange loop is this year. So I'm not oh, sure. This if year. I won oh, Moulin Rouge. Was that Moulin Rouge? Rouge. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So Moulin Rouge won. Yeah. What was that like? So you get nominated for that. And what was that? I mean, you've been doing Broadway since you were 17 years old. Yeah. Right. And, so. you know, and, be, you know, because of that, because I've been doing it for so long and I've like experienced, you know, secondhand so many Tony awards and been inside of how they work and learned how they work and who gets what and why and what the politics are and all of that stuff, <laughs> you know, behind the curtain look. <laughs> yeah, I know. Part of me was like, Oh yeah, the Tony awards, how can they really know what's good? You know, I don't know, blah, 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 whatever. Like I was sure. I'm like at age 23, I was like, uh, whatever. <laughs> Tony Woods, I'm so jaded. Uh, I've done five. I bet people think and... that way though about the Grammy Awards. They do, too. yeah. <laughs> but then when it came down, when it came, when we actually, when I actually got nominated, uh, all of that was gone. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> I'm like, why? Have I... <laughs> it was, so that was that was incredibly exciting. And there was four of us who were orchestrating that project, and we were all doing a piece of the arrangements for that show. And it's it's really incredible what that music team has pulled off with that musical because it's just an insane explosion of mashups and remixes and covers. And it's like, it's truly an incredible thing. It was crazy to work on unbelievable orchestra band sounds great. Uh, and they, all those people have been my friends for a very, very long time. So to like walk up there with them was just really thrilling. It was really, really cool. It was really, really cool. That is so it felt cool. like I'm going to be honest with you way better odds than winning a Grammy because it was post COVID and there were just no musicals. i was sort of like this is incredible i might win like i think (laughs) based on what i know about the industry and and what happened and how it was decimated and how little options there are we deserve to win but i think i probably i might win (laughs) yeah well i mean in moulin rouge is such a it's a big obviously well-known yeah yeah it's a powerhouse show yeah and the funny thing about orchestrations as a category is sort of like once if a show starts sweeping the Tonys, if they're giving it Tonys left and right, generally these sort of smaller design awards like sound design and orchestration and lighting design, it just sort of is a pattern that they'll also get those if they're going to sweep anyway. So once oh, the, they will, I figured yeah. that maybe go the other way, like, ah, they've won too many. We're not going to give them these. No, it's kind of a funny, it's kind of a funny thing. I mean, I think it's a result of the fact that like, even during normal times, not just COVID, there just aren't that many shows, you know, there's only let me see. I'm going to Google search right now. How many no, broad, Broadway theaters are there? There are 41 Broadway theaters, right? Uh-huh. And new some of those don't change shows ever. The Lion King, right. you know, Wicked, mm-hmm. Phantom, those have been there for decades. And so, like, there's just not that many new shows that happen every year. And so the ratio of new shows to Tony Awards is like, you know, when you look at it, kind of a kind of a small ratio. And so you can if you know if you know inside the industry really well, it's a lot easier to predict that than the Grammys where people have to sift through 1500 albums to decide, you know what I mean? Right, right, so right. It's an interesting thing to see inside of. But that being said, people still have to vote and we still won, you know, by merit and it is truly truly incredible. We're th- I'm thrilled about it. And I-, I hope Strange Loop deservedly has the same fate because that is an incredible incredible piece of theater that I'm truly honored to work on, seriously. And that's a newer uh, show, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
So it's, that must even be more difficult to break, to cut through something like yeah. Rouge that had a film company, you know, like it's a name that people recognize, right? It's a name, it's a name and it, and it had a lot of money and, you know, large funding. Uh, it's very, uh, it was a big commercial show. And so, yeah, I was able to uh, do really well. Uh, deservedly so I might add. Right. You know. Yeah. No, but, I'm not saying not taking anything away from it, but it, it, yeah. people recognize the name. Like they yeah. go, Oh, yes. like if somebody said here, a strange loop and they put it in like, like what's that? You know? Yeah, they could either. Is that a movie? Is that a song? Like, you know, it could be right. a lot of different things. Totally. Um, and uh, it's funny you say that because it is also the name of a Liz Fair song, which it was inspired. It actually that's intentional. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. That's <laughs> okay. intentional because there was a version that it's funny. The show is both new and old. So the show is actually 20 years old. The, oh, is it? The writer okay. of the show. It's never been produced, but the writer of the show has been working on it for 20 years. And oh, in one wow. in one version of the show, all the music was Liz Fair songs. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that was a long time ago. But the show didn't get produced at all until 2019, uh, even though he had been working on it for a large part of his life, which is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of those shows that like it just doesn't fit to any molds. And the writer of the show, whose name is Michael Jackson, uh, but not the Michael Jackson, his name is just Michael Jackson. It's like semi-autobiographical. And in the show, uh, the main character... Um, is named Usher and he is an usher at, a, at the Lion King, which in real life, Michael was an usher at the Lion King. So it's like semi-autobiographical. Oh, wow. There's no longer Liz Fair songs in it, but her spirit sort of like lives on through it. But it's a show that really like tells its truth so honestly and without compromising any language or content in a way that just makes you go like, yeah, this is what the theater needs. But me as a jaded, you know, theater person in 2019 was like, well, I love this. This show is great, but it'll never go to Broadway. Nobody will take a chance on this weird show. But, you know, the world really finally caught up to the way Michael writes because he's always been writing the way he writes honestly about his life experience. And they, the world finally caught up to him. And it's really cool. That is so cool. That is so cool. So that, it's interesting that he was a, an usher. So he grew up in, you know, working in Broadway all while writing this piece that eventually comes out 20, you said 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he wrote it as part of his thesis uh, for his like musical theater writing uh, thesis at NYU, you know, when he graduated and just has been slowly chipping away at it and working it and changing it over the last 20 years, you know, and he's 41 now and now they're producing it and now it's on Broadway and it's nominated for 11 Tony. So it really was, yeah, I was going like, to say whoosh. it has a ton, right? Like yeah, mm-hmm. it has a ton of nominations. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. cool. I mean that, and were you, this is the, it started in 2019. Was you the first person that worked on it? So that is also an interesting story, you know, because the show hadn't really ever been fully produced. It's really not till it gets to the producing stage that you fill out a music department and bring on somebody that functions as like the orchestrator to mm-hmm. use the formal title. Uh, but there was somebody before me who he was the music director and the orchestrator. And he was a dear friend of Michael's and they went to school together. And sadly he passed away and like, early 2019. Yeah. Very sad. Oh, wow. Died way too young. It's very sad. We really miss him. He was a really great guy. Uh, but that was a few months before the production off Broadway in 2019 was scheduled. And the director of a strange loop also directed a show that I orchestrated called be more chill, which was in 2019. Mm, okay. So during be more chill, he was sort of like, Hey man, we're scrambling. Like, do you think you could fill in on this show? We, we really need you. I think, I think you have the right vocabulary, you know, our, the person before you sadly passed away and was ill. It's, I'm like, oh man, well, of course, obviously I'm happy to help. And so it's, it's a tragic reason why I got uh, offered the job, but I'm so glad I did because it's really like, I, really a game changing show. Really. Mm-hmm. I really love it. 
I really, and I'm, I'm rarely this like, uh, like explicitly enthusiastic about like loving a show, but man, I love this show. That's so cool. Well, I hope, I mean, with 11 nominations, I hope it goes sweep it so. through. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Incredible. Fingers Very, crossed. Yeah, that is so cool. And you also did, uh, you scored a film too here today with Billy Crystal. Yeah, that was cool. Over the pandemic, you know, we shot it in 2019 and uh, then the pandemic happened. And so, you know, normally scoring a film is a very inc- fast and aggressive process, but we got to really take a year's worth of time because of that. Yeah. But yeah, it was very cool. An indie film with Tiffany Haddish was the lead uh, opposite of Billy Crystal. And that was that was so fun. It's a great it was a great time. He's great. Was that the first film that you had like a big budget film like that you had a chance to score? It was. Yeah. Yeah. I had done some indie films for my friends and things here and there, but that was the first time that, um, you know, sort of a, a full, a, a more legitimate production had sort of taken a chance on me after floating around in theater for a long time and scoring stuff in theater. I scored some plays, you know, and things like that. Uh, but I got the connection through a composer named Mark Shaman, who I've been working with and Mark scores Billy's films. They've worked, they've, you know, he's been scoring Billy's films forever. He scored when Harry met, uh, let me just confirm that. Yeah, he scored. I'm going to just confirm before I say that. No worries. I'm like 99% sure. I can't believe I'm doubting myself because I know that this is true, but, you know, I don't want to be wrong. All good. <laughs> Isn't the yeah, internet, Mark's- like, I love how it's so, like, you're just like, let me just double check. <laughs> like, you know, five clicks later. <laughs> I know, I'm going to okay. fact check. I'm going to fact check myself. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, Mark that's why Shaman. I love doing interviews this way as well. Yeah, why right. not you just can figure it out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, Mark Shaman scored like, yeah, When Harry Met Sally and, and a lot of the Nora Ephron movies. But he's also like he composed Hairspray and, you know, Catch Me If You oh, Can wow. and Charlie and Chocolate. Like he's he's a Broadway guy, but also did a lot of films, you know, mm-hmm. does a lot of films. So Billy was like, hey, I have this indie film. It's got kind of a limited budget. Would you be interested in scoring it? And he was like, I don't think I have time, but you should use you should use this young guy. He'll, he'll do it for you. So that's how I met him. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so, is it something that you're interested in doing again or yeah. did you enjoy it because it was your first like real big, you know, big film that you had oh, yeah. the time to do it. Oh yeah. I loved it. I will absolutely do it again. It's like, it's funny the difference between composer and arranger or like composer and producer. It's sort of like, you know, if the composer is the architect, the arranger, producer, they're like the interior designer. You know, the composer like mm-hmm. builds the whole scaffolding and builds the rooms. And then once you arrange and produce a thing, it's like, I'm going to paint a picture here and this here. And, you know, that's sort of, so it's, it's cool to finally be like the architect, you know, and not just, not just the design, but the interior decorator, you know? Right, right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I love it. Well, I, thank you so much for doing this, Charlie. This has been awesome. I appreciate oh yeah, of it. course. My pleasure. Super fun. Yeah, I've just learned so much because this is a world that I've never I've, mm. I've only interviewed a handful of people uh, doing what you're doing. And yeah, have you done uh, any so other cool. theater? I was curious. Are there any other theater um, people that you've interviewed? Yeah, the, the guy that did the TikTok musical, he did oh, Ratatouille, cool. uh, Daniel. What's his last name? Uh, Daniel Mertzloft, I think. is. Yeah, uh, that feels I, right. I've read his uh, name before. I yeah, can't he did it. Uh, uh, there's a couple other people that I right. just like not off the top of my head no, thinking good. of, but um, yeah, I, I love, love it. And cool. I, a few people that play in orchestra, like uh, the, uh, a woman who plays bass for um, the book of Mormon, stuff like that. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So nice. Is it, but, who is that? Is it Alex Eckhart? 
Yes. Oh, cool. I know her really well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd have to hear Very the name. Well. I've yeah. we've published like over a thousand interviews. So it's like, I got uh, like right. going back to her names. I'm like, Oh yeah, that is it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I love Alex. She's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So it's been, yeah, it's been fun. It's just yeah. a world that not a whole, I haven't had a chance to interview a whole lot of people. And, and I, mm. and I'm so fascinated by it because just the skill that you have to have and, just the knowledge into it is like, you know, PhD level degrees in, in music <laughs> to even comprehend it. Or whereas I'll interview a lot of people that just, you know, played guitar in their bedroom for, you know, <laughs> five, six years and wrote a hit. And which is also great at it, which you know we also I mean? love. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, which I love as well. Don't get me wrong, but it's just like two totally different ends totally, of, the, totally. of the music spectrum there. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it's so right. cool. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. Well, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, I have one more question. I want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists. Yeah. My advice for aspiring artists is like, find a thing that makes you unique, unique, you know, find, find something that you do that nobody else totally does. And then find a way to brand it and market yourself. I mean, that's just the name of the game these days. Find the thing that you do, do you do better, slightly better than other people and, and play that up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Charlie. You've been amazing. I appreciate your time. Totally. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, have a good one. Bye. Okay.